Take your Bible with me this morning, if you will, and open to the book of Philippians. If you're joining us online or those of you that are in the auditorium or here for the very first time, we are studying through the book of Philippians, and we have arrived at Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 21. Now, ultimately, we're going to read all 10 of those verses, but by way of beginning, we're going to read just the first five verses, and I invite you to follow along with me. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching uh, forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, Let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Let's pray together as we begin this morning. Father, we thank you that we've been able to listen to and even participate in the music that has gone before and Lord, we've been able to come together as you commanded your children to do. And Lord, we're thankful to be able to have that privilege. We're also thankful for those who are not yet comfortable coming out that can join us by live stream. And we pray, Lord God, that you will bless them by television. We pray that you will bless them and watch over them. And Lord, we look forward to the day that they will be able to join us as well. Lord, we know that you're here. And Lord, we pray that we will have the experience with you today that you want us to have. In your name we pray. Amen. Dr. Warren Wearsby, who is one of my favorite authors, says that Philippians chapter 3 is where Paul is giving us his spiritual biography. He says that verses 1 to 11 of chapter 3 are about his past. Verses 12 to 16 are about his present, and verses 17 to 21 are about his future. And I suppose that's a good way to approach this chapter, a good way to outline this chapter. But what I want you to see from the verses that we've read today is that the Apostle Paul is going through a spiritual self-evaluation, a spiritual self-evaluation. And one of the things that I appreciate is that he doesn't say, I've arrived, I've attained, I'm there. As he does this spiritual evaluation, He reminds us that all of us have room to grow and all of us have room to mature and all of us have room uh, to learn more of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's true for everyone who's listening today, everyone who's a part of this service. When you think about that, you have to be reminded that as he's writing these words, it's been almost 30 years since he first met the living Christ. You may remember that on the road to Damascus, Paul this devoutly Jewish man who saw Christ and Christianity as a threat to Judaism and who wanted to stamp it out and who wanted to stop it, if at all possible, had in his hand papers on his way to Damascus for the purpose of taking under arrest any Christians that he found found there. But while he was on that journey, he met the living Christ, the one who had died to pay the penalty of mankind's sin. 
the one who was buried and who rose again, that living Christ who gives the gift of eternal life through faith. The living Christ met him on that road, and the Apostle Paul's life was dramatically changed at that moment. But 30 years later, Christ, the living Christ, is still transforming and still changing the life of Paul. There is never a time in our spiritual journey that we can ever say, we've arrived, we've made it, we're there. The reality is, like the Apostle Paul, there is still more for all of us to learn and ways in which all of us can grow. And that's what the scripture teaches in many different places. For instance, Peter speaking in 1 Peter chapter 3 says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. On another occasion, the Apostle Paul talking about spiritual growth says that God has given to the church uh, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the maturing of the saints. He goes on through that passage from verse 11 to verse 16 of Ephesians 4, and he says to bring the people to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then he comes a little later and he says that they may grow up, that they may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. And so we have to come to this section of scripture where Paul is going through a self-evaluation of his own spiritual life, the purpose of which is to help the Philippians do that evaluation and to help us to do that evaluation. He's going through this self-evaluation, and as he does so, he reminds us even 30 years after having met Christ, he still has room to grow. He, has still, he still has room for maturity and for a deeper relationship and a deeper fellowship with the Lord. And what's interesting here as you think about this self-evaluation is that there are three specific things that are necessary if we're going to have this self-evaluation and have it effectively. First of all, Paul tells us that we have to have a holy dissatisfaction a holy dissatisfaction. In other words, as we've read through these first five verses, what Paul is saying here is that I'm not resting on my laurels. That's a little phrase that sometimes we hear. We don't know the background to it, but it comes out of the first century in the, in the, the Olympic games of that day. And you would step up onto the judge's platform and the judge would give you a laurel wreath. And you'd Receive that like you would receive the gold medal. You would receive that as the winner's crown, that laurel wreath. But you can't rest on your laurels, what you have already accomplished, what you have already won. There are still races ahead of you. There's still track that's before you. There's still things to be accomplished. You can't rest on your laurels. And that's how Paul says it. You notice chapter 3, verse 12, not, circle that word, not that I have already Circle that one, already attained or am already perfected. Twice he says it. I, I want to make it clear in this self-evaluation of my own spiritual life. I've not already attained. I've not already reached the place of total maturity. I'm still in the process. He goes on in verse 13. He says, I do not count myself to have apprehended. There was a holy dissatisfaction 
in the life of the Apostle Paul who said, I know that this is not all there is. I know that there is still more to learn and to grow and to mature. I know there is still more of the experience that God wants me to have with him. And what's interesting here is that in verse 13, he says, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul says, I'm not resting on my laurels. I'm not going to live with, you know, this happened to me five years ago. This happened to me 10 years ago. There's still ground to to conquer. There's still territory to take. There's still a a relationship in which I can grow. And he says, I'm pressing forward. I'm moving toward the goal. What is the goal? The prize of the upward call of God in in Christ Jesus. Uh, There's a few people who say that the upward call is what takes place at death. When we are laid in the grave. We die. We have an upward call into his presence. And the prize is to be at home with the Lord. There's some others who say that the upward call is the rapture of the church. Uh, those uh, of us who know what the scripture says about the future understand that there is a future day when there'll be the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And if we're alive at that moment, we'll be caught up together with them in, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And that's the, that's the prize, that upward call. There's still a few that suggest that the upward call takes place at the judgment seat of Christ. They base that on the image of those Greek games, those Olympic games of the first century. When you finished the race, you came to the judges' stand, and you stood up on the judges' stand, and they gave you the reward. They gave you that laurel wreath. That was the evidence that you had won. And you realize that there is a judgment day for us. Our sins were judged on Jesus. The penalty of our sins was paid by the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a future day for everyone who is a believer in Jesus when our works will be judged as to whether they are worthy of reward or not. It's not as to whether you're going to get into heaven or not. It's to whether you're going to have rewards or not. And then what you're going to do with those rewards, here's the great thing Revelation tells us, you're going to take those rewards and ultimately you're going to cast them at the feet of Jesus because you only have those rewards because the Lord has enabled you and helped you. And so some people think that the upward call is that moment at the judgment seat when he calls us up and he gives us the prize, the laurel wreath, that reward. But I want to give you another way to understand the upward call, the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Uh, The Greek uh, students, the Greek scholars refer to it as as the subjective genitive. You don't need to know what that is, but they call it the subjective genitive. And what it says basically is this, that the upward call is what happens the moment we trust the Lord as our Savior. It's what God is doing every single day. God is calling people to himself. Jesus said in John 3, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He calls us to himself so that the upward call is the salvation that we experience when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal that he's talking about in verse 14 is the goal of Christ-likeness. That is the goal of every believer. As a matter of fact, if you want to talk about predestination, that's what predestination is about. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, you've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. 
It's already predetermined that that's the process in which God is going to be at work in your life, making you more like his son. Well, if that's the goal, Christ's likeness and the upward call is the salvation into which we have come. We have answered that call. Then what is the prize? The prize is that ever enriching, ever deepening, ever growing relationship in fellowship with the Lord God himself. Do you see it? Do you see what he's saying? He's talking here about this holy dissatisfaction. I haven't attained. I haven't arrived. I haven't taken hold of all of these things. I'm pressing for them. I'm still reaching for them. There's still room for me to grow. There's still places for me to mature in my life. Why? Because there's this upward call of salvation. My goal is to be like Jesus. And in that goal, there is a prize. And that prize is an ever-growing and an ever-deepening relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I think Jesus was talking about in John chapter 14. Keep your place in Philippians and turn with me back for a moment to John chapter 14. If there was any one book of the Bible that I wish I could be an expert in, it would be the Gospel of John. It is the New Testament tract. It is the evangelistic book of the New Testament. John's stated purpose is to bring people to faith in Christ through his gospel. But he records for us in verses 14, 15, and 16 some of the things that Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room before he was uh, taken away and crucified and ultimately buried and resurrected. And one of those takes place in response to some of the things that his own disciples were saying to him. You'll notice in verse 22 of John, Judas, that is not Iscariot, not the one that had gone out to betray him, Judas said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, now listen, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Let's stop there for a moment. People who say I love the Lord and disobey God just aren't telling the truth, are they? You can't love God and not obey his word. If you're not obeying his word, you can't say you love God. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. But now notice what happens. People who are obedient, my father, he says, then will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. We will come to him and make our home with him. You say, pastor, isn't it true? That the moment we put our faith in Jesus, we answer that upward call into salvation. Isn't it true at that moment that the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our hearts, that we become the temple of God? Absolutely, that's true. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. That's an amazing thought. He's with you every moment of every day. But what does he say here? He says that the Father and the Son... The Father who's in heaven, the Son who's going to return to heaven, the Father and the Son, for those who are obedient, the Father and the Son will come to him and make our home, not in, but with him. In other words, he's saying there is a, an experience that is deeper and fuller and richer than just that experience at the moment of salvation. There is something more than just escaping hell. 
There is a relationship and a fellowship and a communion with God that only gets richer and only gets better and only gets fuller as to obey the Lord and you become more like Christ. The upward call brought you into salvation. The goal is to become like Jesus and the prize, you get closer and closer to Jesus. And why should we be surprised that Jesus would say something like that? Isn't that what James reiterated in the book of James? He said, draw nigh to God, and he will what? He'll draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. That's what Jesus is saying. My Father and I will come and make our home with you. Why? Because there's that holy dissatisfaction that says, you know what? I don't want to just escape hell. I want all that God has to, has to offer and all that God has to give to me in this relationship. All of the fellowship and all of the communion. Have you ever met that person who just seems to know God? Not just the things about God, but they seem to know God. I thought it was interesting that the patristic uh, fathers used to emphasize the ever-deepening communion that you could have with the triune God. And it was this kind of communion that they said would never be sated, S-T-A-T-E-D, never, or S-A-T-E-D, excuse me, would never be sated. It, was never, it would never be satisfied. In other words, once you've had a little taste of it, you want a little more taste of it. And the more taste you get of it, the more you want of it. Can I just be honest with you? I, I'm an addict. Now, I don't have a problem with drugs. I don't have a problem with alcohol. I don't have a problem with cigarettes. I'm a sugar addict. Any of you a sugar addict? You get one bite, and one bite is never enough. Why can't one cookie be enough? Why does it have to be six? Why does one half of a brownie not satisfy you, and two or three seems to satisfy you for a little while? It's like the bag of chips. You can't eat just... what's. The, you can't eat just one. That's what he's saying. He's saying that upward call that brought you into a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal is you to become more like Jesus. That's what you've been predestined to be, to be more like Jesus in your life. And the more you become like Jesus, the prize of that upward call is an ever-deepening and an ever-enriching relationship with the God of heaven. Why should we be surprised? The psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. And once you've had that taste, it's like that sugar addict. You just want another taste and another taste and another taste. Or when the psalmist said in Psalm 42, verse 1, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. Some of us are satisfied. We're out of hell. We're on our way to heaven. We have a relationship with God, though it's not very much to us. doesn't mean very much to us. It's not something that, that we're really working at, nothing we're really striving to improve, no, no growth really going on in our lives. But we just know that we're not going to have to spend eternity separated from God, paying the penalty of our own sin. When God has something so much more that he wants for every one of us. Now listen, I'm not talking about something that's mystical, I'm talking about something that every person can experience. 
every one of us can have in our lives when we have this holy dissatisfaction that says, you know what? I'm saved, but this is not all there is. There's more. There's more that he wants me to experience. I think of that old song that we used to sing, more of you, more of you. I've tried all, but what I need is more of you. Mary used to sing that to me. She doesn't do that anymore. More of you, more of you, I've tried all, but what I need is more of you. Of things I've had my fill, and yet I hunger still, empty and bare. Lord, hear my prayer for more of you. Do you know what? God wants you to have that kind of an experience, that kind of an ever-deepening, ever-enriching, and the only way you will ever have it, if you have a self-evaluation and you come to the place of recognizing there's got to be in your life a holy dissatisfaction. There's got to be more to following Jesus than just escaping hell. And there is. God wants us to experience so much more. The goal of this race is Christ's likeness, and the prize of the upward call is an ever-deepening communion with Jesus. When's the last time you felt the nearness of Christ in your life? When's the last time that you knew you were walking with him and he was walking with you? When's the last time you drew near to God and you sensed that God was drawing near to you? You have lots to learn. You may have been saved 30 years. You may have been saved 40 years. You may have been saved 50 years, but you still have room to grow and to develop and to mature and to enter into this growing, deepening, enriching relationship with God. And you may be three days old in the Lord, maybe three hours old in the Lord. And God has so much more that he wants to show you and that he wants you to experience with him. But you'll never have it if you don't have that holy dissatisfaction. I heard about a first grader who went to school the first week of school and he came home on Friday and announced to his mother, I'm not going back to school next week. And she thought about it for a moment, so she asked him, why aren't you going back, honey? And he responded, because they can't teach me anymore. And that's where a lot of Christians are. I know it all. I've got it all. I know some Bible scholars, giants. They know all the details, but they don't know God. They may know him in salvation, but they don't know him in the experience. Now, look, you've got to have the knowledge you got to have the understanding. you got to get into the Word of God. you got to see what it has to say. you got to have this growing relationship, this growth in grace and in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. you got to have those things, but you got to have a holy dissatisfaction. Are you satisfied with where you are? You remember when you were excited about the Lord? You remember when the things of God meant something to you? You remember when prayer was like touching heaven? You knew you were touching heaven? You remember when you read your Bible and you felt God was speaking to you? You remember when you shared your faith and there was a passion about the way you shared your faith? You remember when you gathered with believers and it was more than a perfunctory duty? You remember those things? Or have we become so satisfied, you know? I'm out of hell. I'm okay. I got enough knowledge. I've learned enough. There has to be a holy dissatisfaction. And that comes from a spiritual evaluation of our own lives and recognizing wait a minute, 
I'm missing a lot of what God wants me to experience. But secondly, that there has to be a heavenward disposition. A heavenward disposition. I'd remind you that he calls this the upward call. Did you hear the word? <laughs> upward. There's upward basketball and upward other things. But I'm talking about the call of God. There's the upward call. A little bit later, as I'm about to show you, he talks about their citizenship, his citizenship that's in heaven. In other words, the apostle Paul had set his mind on eternal things and not just on the temporal. The apostle Paul was concerned with spiritual things and not just the secular things. He had done what he talks about in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, when he says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Matter of fact, he gives a contrast of these two kinds of minds, the earthly-minded and the heavenly-minded, the heavenward-minded. Just, just look at it, verse 17. He goes on, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many, now listen to his words, many, not just some, many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. That's metaphorical. He's using that of the unrestrained fleshly desires. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame. Now listen, who set their mind on earthly things. Do you realize while unbelievers do that, inevitably Christians do that often? They set their mind on earthly things. But look at the contrast. Verse 20, for our citizenship. Unlike those I've just told you about, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is, even, uh, which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And now he's talking about that future day that day of the rapture, the ultimate experience with the Lord Jesus and the ultimate Christ-likeness when we're made in our bodies like the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know what? You'll never grow deeper in your relationship with God if there's not a holy dissatisfaction that says there is more and I'm going to keep growing and keep developing. And if there's not a heavenward disposition, a mind that says, I'm not going to live just thinking about this world. I'm going to intentionally set my mind on the world to come. I've heard it numerous times through the course of my life. People will say, well, they're so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. I have yet to meet that person. Are you all watching? Everybody watching? I have yet to meet that person. Almost 63 years in, I have yet to meet that person. But I have met a whole lot of people, sometimes my own self, that are so earthly-minded, we're of no heavenly good. Think about it for a moment. Think about John Mark. Now, John Mark will ultimately be recovered from his failure. He'll become the writer of the Gospel of Mark. But remember when he was chosen by Paul and Barnabas to go on that very first missionary journey? And somewhere along that journey, what happens? Well, we don't really know everything that happens, but something occurred. Whether it was the hardship of the travel, 
whether it was the opposition and persecution with which I had to deal, whether it was homesickness that John Mark was feeling in his heart. We don't know exactly the reason, but here's what it says. It says that John Mark left them. He left them, if you will, in the lurch, and he went back to Jerusalem. He set his mind on earthly things. Or think about Paul when he talks about a man named Demas. Demas has left me. You know the next phrase? Having loved this present world. Hear what he says? He became so earthly minded, he was of no heavenly good. Or or think about the parable of Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 where he interprets it himself. Jesus talking about the sower who goes forth to sow the seed. Some of it falls on the hard ground and the birds pick it up and take it away. Some of it falls on the shallow ground where there's there's a rock beneath it. And it springs up quickly, but when the sun comes up, it wilts. Some of it falls in what? The thorny ground, the ground that's filled with all kinds of weeds. And those weeds grow up and choke it out. And some of it falls on the good ground. Do you know what Jesus says about that third soil that's sown in the ground that has all these weeds and all of these thorns? You know what Jesus calls those thorns and those weeds? He says they are the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches that choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. They choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. We become so earthly minded, we're of no heavenly good. We live so much for this world rather than for the world that is yet to come. We fail to remember that our citizenship isn't here. Yes, we're American citizens, but there is a citizenship far greater than that. Our citizenship is in heaven. We have to set our mind on the things of heaven and keep our minds heavenward focused. By the way, can I just give you one test as to whether you have a heavenward disposition? Don't be mad at me. Just one test, just one out of several. One test. What do you do with your money? What do you do with your money? How do you use your money? Do you use it for the glory of God? Do you use it for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus? Or are you spending only on yourself? What did Jesus say in Matthew 6, 19 to 26? Lay not not up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where does he say to lay them up? Lay up treasures where? In heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How do you use your money? Look at your checkbook. You say, preacher, you're just trying to get us to give. Hey, look, I want you to lay up treasures. I want you to be rich toward God. I want you to understand that there are things more important than the things that we seem to think are so important that last and can't be taken with us when we get buried in the ground. But the work of God is greater because the work of God lives on eternally through the lives of people who are changed. The Apostle Paul doing this self-evaluation, spiritual self-evaluation, demonstrates a holy dissatisfaction without which nobody will ever grow spiritually. If you're satisfied, you've become like a stagnant pond. You're just standing there and stuff is growing on top of you and sometimes you stink. Because you've gotten satisfied when the Lord has so much more he wants you to experience. And there has to be a heavenward disposition. You have to set your heart on heaven. 
You have to be looking forward to the day when Jesus is going to come and give us the ultimate Christ-likeness made into his image. But thirdly, if we're going to grow spiritually while we're doing this self-spiritual self-evaluation, we have to have a honed determination, H-O-N-E-D, focused, sharpened. We have to have a honed determination. I don't know if you feel like this, but let me tell you how I feel sometimes. I feel like the circus performer who has these long dowels all standing, dozens, a few dozen of them. He's got a stack of plates over here. And he goes and gets a plate, and he spins one of those plates on that dial, and he pulls another one, does another plate. By the time he gets down to the first line, this one back here starts to wobble. It's going to fall off. You think it's going to break. He runs back, and he spins all the plates again. Then he gets some more, and he finishes putting some more in that middle row. And he has to go back and spin some more. You ever feel like that? ever find yourself so incredibly distracted by so many things that are going on? I'm a one-track kind of a person. Give me one task. Let me finish the task. Then give me the next task. I can do a ton of tasks. I just can't do them all at the same time. And people who throw everything at me at the same time lose me in the process. And it gets worse, you young people. It gets worse the older I get. It gets worse. I envy those of you That's a spiritual envy I'm talking about. I envy those of you that can multitask and keep all those plates spinning at the same time. But I look at them and they're all wobbling and I'm trying to run back and forth. And in the process of the busyness and the distractions of life, we forget what's most important. Listen to what Paul says. Come back to these first five verses. In verse 13, he says, Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but here it is, one thing I do. I love Paul for that one reason, if no other reason. He's a lot like me. This is not about multitasking. This is about one thing, this honed determination. I'm going to stay focused on this one thing. What is that one thing? It is the upward call, the prize of the upward call that comes as you reach the goal of Christ-likeness. There's this prize that comes out of this upward call, this prize of an ever-enriching enriching and ever-deepening relationship with Jesus Christ. There is incredible power in honing your focus and your concentration. And if I could get those of you who are so busy, sometimes it's with children, sometimes it's with other things. You are so busy, you don't have time for God. You are too busy. And you need a honed determination that you're going to come back to what's most important in life and give it your attention. Think about a drill. I own a drill. It's never been plugged in. I don't even know that I have bits for it. But I have a drill. Think about a drill. You know why it's so powerful? Because it concentrates all of its efforts at one single point. Think think about a wedge when you're splitting wood. My father-in-law said, I'm going to teach you how to split wood, David. He was very disappointed when when his daughter fell in love with me. (laughs) Mary grew up in the country, 50 acres of property, uh, had a huge garden. I'm not talking about a garden like you've got. I'm talking about an acre and a half or two garden. 
to feed the cows and the other animals. He he had this huge garden. He loved the big machinery. He drove a tractor. He loved a tractor. He said, I'm going to teach you, David, how to drive a tractor. Taught me how to drive a bus. Said, I'm going to teach you how to split wood. I'm a city boy. I showed up. The only grass I ever saw grew up between the cracks in in the pavement. My daddy was a businessman. He wasn't an outdoorsman. Fishing was something he had to take me on, on a trip one time. I mean, it just wasn't, just, and it wasn't enjoyable. <laughs> Why anybody gets up that early in the morning to go fishing, I have no idea. He didn't either. He didn't either. But I got to give my son that experience. Mr. Smith said, I'm going to teach you how to split wood. And he takes the wedge and he puts it down in the crack in the wood where he's already split the wood a little bit. And he says, now take the sledgehammer, David, and rear it back and hit that, hit that wedge. I reared back and hit that wedge with the wood handle (laughs) and snapped his best sledgehammer right in two, but he never asked me again. (laughs) Never again. David, you can hit a golf ball, but you can't hit that wedge. That sledgehammer is a lot heavier than a golf club. That wedge focuses all of the attention right where it needs to be so that the wood can be split. Think about the field goal kicker. You've seen him. That's one of the most lonely jobs there is in football. The field goal kicker. He is going to line up to kick the field goal. He backs up so many steps. He crosses over so many steps. He gets into his position. He's ready. And the coach from the other team says, time out. We're going to ice him. We're going to ice him. You know what he means, don't you? We're going to get him out of the zone. We're going to get him from focusing. They come back. It's time for him to kick. He counts out the exact same number of steps. He steps over the exact same space. He gets into his position, and he runs, and he kicks the ball. Listen, when you focus, I'm told that athletes can sometimes get so zoned out that they don't even notice the pain that their bodies are in because they're performing. What are you telling me, preacher? I'm telling you, that's what it takes to grow in the Lord. Somebody says, well, you just got to let go and let God. Well, I agree with that to one degree. You'll never do anything of any spiritual value if the Lord is not enabling you and the Lord is not helping you. But you have to cooperate with the Lord. What does he say here? I press on, verse 12, I press on. At the end of verse 13, reaching forward. Verse 14, I press toward. Those are all athletic terms. They, They demonstrate a runner or a charioteer, somebody who's in this competition, and every muscle is strained and pushing forward. You've seen them trying to cross the finish line. They're stretched out. If it's a charioteer, it's just a piece of wood with some wheels on either side hooked up to a horse, and they're there holding on to the reins, and every muscle is straining. They're participating. There's a honed determination. We're going to grow. You're never going to grow in the Lord if there's not a honed determination. This one thing I'm going to do, I'm going to grow in the Lord, unfortunately. Instead of saying this one thing, too many Christians say, these 30 things I'll dabble in. You can't read the Bible sporadically, attend church spasmodically, pray occasionally, and expect to have an exceptionally deep communion with Christ. We have to get focused and determined to press on and to reach forward if we're going to to grow spiritually. We've got to give everything 
that we can give, enabled by the Spirit of God and cooperating with the Spirit of God, we begin to grow deeper into Christ-likeness. And with Christ-likeness comes this greater intimacy and this greater relationship, deeper relationship and fellowship and communion with God. So I don't feel like God's very close to me. I'll almost guarantee you it's because you're not putting much of an effort into getting close to God. So what does God use to bring spiritual growth? I can't take time with these. He uses the word of God. He uses prayer. He uses godly examples. Look back for a moment. Look at verse 16. He says, nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example. He uses godly examples. He uses the church. He uses trials. Why are we in a pandemic? Why are you going through tough times in life? Because God wants to work in those circumstances to draw close to you as you draw close to him. So let me ask you a question. What are you going to do about your spiritual growth in your life? Paul stops and does a spiritual evaluation. Here is a man who wrote all of these New Testament letters, inspired New Testament letters, who is responsible for planting these churches in the Gentile territories, who we look back as one of the heroes of the faith, one of the greatest missionaries that ever lived. And he evaluates his spiritual life 30 years after meeting Jesus, and he says, I'm not there yet. I'm just not there yet. I'm pressing on and I'm reaching forth. There is a deeper, richer, fuller relationship and fellowship with communion with God. And I'm going to apply myself. What are you going to do about your spiritual growth in life? What adjustments are you going to make to prioritize that one thing? What things are you going to leave behind to seek Christ? We didn't talk about that. You've got to leave things behind, both good and bad. Are you going to continue to coast? In your relationship with God? Or are you going to have a highly intentional, please hear the words, highly intentional walk with God? At the bottom of a great mountain in Switzerland, there was a little country church. And in the yard of the church, there's a grave of a young man who died trying to climb that mountain. And on his tombstone, it gives his name, the dates, and then these words. He died climbing. That'd be a pretty good epitaph to put on your tombstone. That'd be a pretty good epitaph to put on your life. He died climbing, getting closer to God. 